Incumbent write-in candidate Bart Simpson fires communications secretary. In honor of the campaign, what fictional politician would you push towards a presidential run? I'm Katie Rich, and I chose Dave from Dave. He wasn't really a politician, but he was Kevin Klein, and that's close enough. Hey, it's me, Dave, with a seven. I'm going to say a fictional third term for fictional President Bartlett. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Senator Jar Jar Binks from Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, because Misa wants a president. And I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going to go with Tracy Flick from Alexander Payne's Election, because I like reminding you that that movie exists. <laughs> that was such a, like, not enthusiastic reason to pick Tracy Flick. I'm eating creme brulee. What do you want from me? There have been recent developments regarding Operation Kino. Welcome to Operation Kino for the week of August 10th, 2012. There are some movies coming out this week, but we're not talking about any of them because it's time for the third quarter quill. Ooh, this is the moment whoa, where some kind we're of... we're not cheering? All right. I feel like a siren cheer. shouldn't go off. Do you off. want to cheer, Dave? Woo! Woo! Okay, then Katie's just going to cheer then. Yeah. Uh, we both cheered. Yeah, see? We cheered. Woo. We're, we're very excited there about the quarter go. quill. Um, if you have not caught previous installments of the quarter quill, we've started a tradition where every 25th episode we change the format. We each have kind of a long-term tidbit in which we talk about a movie that is important to each of us for uh, individual reasons. Uh, this is our 75th episode. Congratulations, everybody. We made it to 75. And for this one, we are not so much talking about the movies themselves, but the stories around them. We've each kind of picked movies that we saw under specific circumstances or meant something to us or kind of have a story to go with them. I'd like to think that everyone has a story around some of the, their favorite movies that they saw. And we yeah, have we have It's like a, not- a notable nostalgia pick, I guess. Yeah. I know. We'll see how nostalgia factors into it. Uh, that's what I'm curious about. Yeah, that, that that will be. I mean, I don't think anyone's hearkening back to movies they saw as a four year old dazzled on their parents' lap. So no one, you go. We're not bringing like ET first movie memories into this. But although none of us were born when ET came out, so that doesn't really count. Anyway, we will each uh, bring a film to the table. We'll we'll talk about it. It might be monologue. Might be discussion based. We don't really know how it's going to go. That's the excitement of the quarter quell. So, but only one yeah. of us lives at the end. That's that, true. that never changes. That, that, that is definitely true. Ten million dollars for participating in this, <laughs> and then we each get to go on a, a tour of Panem and show ourselves off to the nation. But we're definitely not infringing on any copyrights by using the term <laughs> quarter quell. That's true. No, certainly not. At this point in time, then no film has used the term quarter quell, so we made it up on our own. Um. Anyway, we're going to. Uh, start with the quarter quell i'm going first but before i go we're going to have a music break Guessing the parts we play. 
Okay, so for my quarter quail pick, as you might have heard, I've chosen the Audrey Hepburn, Cary Grant romantic comedy charade, which was released in 1963. Obviously, my story does not come from 1963. It comes from 2004, which was the summer between my sophomore and junior year of college. I had just become a film major. I was kind of about to start uh, hardcore studies as a film major. And I was living in Cologne, Germany for the summer. Uh, And kind of instead of going abroad, I did this program where they set you up with internships at various companies in Germany. Um, I studied German in high school, and it kind of was my pseudo-study abroad thing because I didn't really want to miss a whole semester of college. So I was working at this film magazine. I uh, shared with some of the podcasters my review of Agent Cody Banks 2, which is in German, and my German has degraded to the point that I can't really read it that well. But I'm pretty sure it was good at the time. Um, so I was living in Cologne, Germany. I was living in this basement apartment by myself until the last week I lived there when a group of Belarusian street musicians moved in for the last week and uh, taught me how to solve crossword puzzles in Russian, which was fun. Um, but for most of the time that I was there, I was living by myself and I was really bad at it. Like, I think a lot of people go to Europe and kind of travel around and spend their summer and make friends and have memories and you know, have all these great stories. And I, I was not good at that. I wasn't good at making friends there. I was kind of on my own. I had, there were a couple of other Americans in the program, but they were all in a town about 40 minutes away. So I'd go see them sometimes. And kind of every time my, my coworkers tried to take pity on me and like invite me out to watch soccer games and bars. And I, you know, I was, I consider myself a friendly person, but I was not taking advantage of the opportunity in any way that I should have. And and this extended to taking weekend trips because in Europe they have uh, Ryanair and EasyJet and these uh, airline companies where you can fly across European cities for like 30 euros. Like it's, it's pretty easy to take these flights. So I went to Berlin for a weekend and I went to uh, Amsterdam for a weekend, which is where my story takes place. Um, I took the train there. It's the first time I'd been to Amsterdam. I was, you know, excited to see it. But again, I was by myself and not that good at making friends, so I didn't get to go to the bars in the red light district. And I went to one coffee shop and ate a pot brownie, and it was not very memorable. Um, So I kind of just wandered around this city by myself for a couple days, which was actually awesome. Amsterdam is a gorgeous city. I I have no experience with what most American tourists do there, but I like seeing the buildings and the parks and the Anne Frank House. And uh, at some point, I walked past a film museum. And they were having an Audrey Hepburn retrospective. And I had seen at that point probably Breakfast at Tiffany's at some point in Roman Holiday. But, I, you know, I'm not especially well-versed. I'm still not especially well-versed in Audrey Hepburn. Um, But they had a screening of this movie Charade that was happening the night that I was there. I guess it was a Saturday. So I kind of set that up as my one thing that I had to do. So I had this planned and I was getting ready to go over there and kind of killing time, which is what I did basically the whole weekend. Um, and the storm starts rolling in. Like, kind of, we've been getting a lot of storms like this in New York the last couple of days. You guys know what I'm talking about, where the sky just gets black. Derecho. And you're kind of, there, it, yeah, it was, a, it was a Dutch derecho, which I'm sure it's is a, a thing It's a great name for a Brooklyn band, but... <laughs> it's, it's true. I hope it will become a Brooklyn band. So I was surviving my first derecho, though I didn't know it was that at the time. So uh, I was kind of standing in a magazine store trying to, like, wait it out, and it starts pouring rain, and I realized that if I I'm going to make this movie. I got to go. So I'm wearing, I spent like a whole summer walking around Europe in rubber old Navy flip-flops, which is crazy. Like I have, I mean, I guess I'm old now and I can't imagine doing it. So I was wearing these flip-flops without any traction. So I had to take those off and I'm like wearing a skirt and running through like cobblestone, charming Amsterdam streets, like a crazy person trying to get to this movie. 
And I, you know, the there's nobody else on the street. They're all standing under awnings kind of watching me run. And I, uh, there's lightning. I remember there being lightning crashing around. It probably wasn't. It was just loud. And I had this distinct fear that I was going to get struck by lightning when I feel this kind of force jolt into me. And my first reaction was, oh, God, I've been struck by lightning. And I turn around, and it's not like a kid who's run into me. It's this man, this Italian man. I think he was Italian in, like, this dark gray suit, like, very well put together. He also had no umbrella, and he was wearing these loafers, and he just slipped in them. And he skidded down the street and ran directly into me. And kind of looked at me with, and like, you know, he didn't see, he didn't speak Dutch or English particularly well. I didn't speak Dutch. I didn't know what he spoke. And we just kind of like mumbled at each other and, you know, went on our way. And I kept running and I get to this really beautiful old movie theater. Um, and they had these like big red carpeted stairs and it was huge. And it's this old palace and kind of all the things that you associate with great movie houses. It's kind of like the Ziegfeld in New York, so far as I remember. And I start walking up the stairs to go see this movie, and the man in the gray suit turns out to be walking up the stairs behind me. He was running to get to the same screening. And we kind of had this brief conversation, like, just about running into each other on the street and being there. And so about a year later, I had a short fiction class, and I kind of wrote a version of this story as fiction, kind of from that man's point of view. And in that version, like, we had a conversation, and we sat in the movie and kind of had this connection across cultures. And I was still not very good at talking to people. So that didn't happen in real life. I kind of, you know, made my way up to the balcony where I never sat in a balcony for a movie before. So I sat up there by myself. And I I kind of have my regrets about not establishing that connection and once again, not taking advantage of it. But Charade is a movie that's kind of all about that. And it's about Audrey Hepburn getting involved in this criminal case and Cary Grant shows up and you don't know if he's a con man trying to rob her of her husband's fortune or if he's trying to protect her from these other guys. And Walter Matthau's in it as the, you know, the official guy who's, who's trying to help her out too and it's this great movie with like intrigue and Parisian locations and you know uh, there's a scene where Cary Grant takes a shower in his suit and that that scene has this very intensive memory with me with that man in the gray suit being soaking wet Um, and it's it's a light and really fantastic movie and it's the kind of thing where you live vicariously through a movie and I was was going to Paris about a week later I was kind of ending my internship and I was going to be doing traveling around Europe which I again I went to a bunch of cities by myself didn't meet people, didn't do it as quite as well as I should have. I got to go back again. But I saw this movie, Charade, set in Paris while I was in Amsterdam and kind of fantasized about what a trip to Paris might be like. And even though I wasn't doing as well as I could have at living that kind of European adventure, I kind of had this movie to fall back on and then show to other people when I got back and kind of introduce people to this movie that I discovered basically by accident. And it's not like I falsified this experience of Europe that I had, but it kind of worked that way in my memory. And I associate this great accidental run-in with this strange man with charade, and it kind of makes that trip better, even though it wasn't what I wish it could have been. So he was the ghost of Cary Grant. I hope so. I hope that in some, in the, uh, what, the, the, brighter timeline the darker timeline from community we uh we became best friends and i go to italy to visit him all the time <laughs> is it something that when you rewatch it it automatically brings you back into like the headspace that you were at that specific yeah time? well it's also and it also kind of ties in with being a new film major and kind of discovering older movies like i had watched older movies in the past but i was kind of learning how to see movies and it kind of comes at that way that juncture where i was learning how older movie works and learning how older comedies worked and understanding who cary grant was and who audrey hepburn was so it's it all kind of fits with being 20 years old and but it also you know, being, sounds like you t- removed yourself from that thinking too you kind of yeah. sweep over you and yeah exactly and that's that moment that you had ex- yeah and that's the other the film. 
that's the other part of it too, and I think that's why I have this affection for it, separate from a lot of the movies I saw in film school, because it it kind of came to me at exactly the moment that I needed it. And it, I mean, if I had seen like uh, Wait Until Dark or Roman, I like a Roman Holiday would have worked, but like other Audrey Hepburn movies would not have had nearly the same impact that Charade did at that exact moment. I mean, that's that's interesting. Do you think it elevated? Like, if you had seen another movie besides Charade, would that movie necessarily connect to your overall experience or did it have to be charade at that time i don't know i I think charade was oddly appropriate the the subject matter i think made sense and i it's possible that i chose it because it uh because it was in paris and i was about to go there but it just i'm I'm really glad it was that movie and not some you know there's any number of old audrey hepburn movies that wouldn't have been uh nearly as much fun god has smiled upon you this day the fate of a nation in your hands and blessed be the children we who fight with all our bravery till only the righteous stand you see the distant flames they bellow in the night you fight in all our names for what we know is right and when you all get shot and cannot carry on though you die la resistance lives on you may stand in a head with a dagger or a sword. You may be burned to death or skinned alive or worse. But when they torture you, you will not feel the need to run for though you die. La resistance lives on. Brave Canada! Brave Canada! Because the country's gone awry, tomorrow night these freaks will cry! Serve it to a pig, and though it hurts your life, and dance a dickless jig. But that's the way it goes, in your shadow, don't you die? Alright, so for my third tribute in this third quarter quell, I have chosen South Park Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. And much like my first uh, quarter quelled pick, this also, this movie also came out in 1999. Um, but um, I think that this is it's wait. Wasn't your last quarter quell pick Godzilla? My... I'm sorry. Wasn't your last quarter quell pick Godzilla? Yes. So it didn't but come out the, in 1999. The fir- my first quarter quell pick. I was just thinking for a second. I was like, wait, was it the 1998 Godzilla? It wasn't, right? Well, when I was doing Godzilla, you were doing another great 1999 movie, American Beauty. That's true. There's a lot of good movies in there in 1999, but um, I'm talking specifically about South Park because um, it is one of those movies that, um, as a child growing up in uh, Colorado, uh, one of my friend's fathers was the guy that basically raided really early versions of like visual digital cable. So like it'd be like two stars for, you know, child's play too and then he would have to write the description and so a lot of it he'd just be able to do and then sometimes he would get uh pre-broadcast tapes of south park which he would give to us 
when, when we were middle schoolers when the uh, show initially started. Probably not the most responsible thing, but it was interesting because South Park as a show was about these foul-mouthed children, uh, was how it was portrayed in the media when it was actually much closer to how I was talking with my friends in middle school at the time. The kids are supposed to be in third, fourth grade. Uh, obviously, I was in seventh or eighth grade. So really early on, I think South Park's hilarious. It's all beeped, um, but that's definitely its media representation. It's made by these guys that went to see you Boulder, and uh, is obviously takes place in uh, Colorado. And as seasons progress, it gets more and more obvious Colorado with stealing things like uh, Casa Bonita or lots of Denver Broncos references whenever they can, or even some very distinct buildings in the skyline. So kind of growing up and watching this series develop, I think anybody who's watched South Park from the beginning can agree that it has a different tone now than when it started. So when it started, it kind of was at a more shock-based level of humor where things like the fact that there was a dancing and speaking piece of poop was enough um, to justify a chuckle or that uh, Cartman <laughs> needed his authority respected. I'm still laughing at that. <laughs> or that Kenny well, died in every episode, didn't they? Or that Kenny died that? in every episode. They ev- Well, yes, they eventually, I mean, didn't do that every episode, but it used to be like a, this is what makes a South Park episode is Kenny dying. And, you know, X and Y, Cartman would say, uh, screw you guys, I'm going home a lot. It was very catchphrasy. Anyway, sometime around 1999, they decide they're going to try um, updating the way they animate the show and make a movie simultaneously. So they go to a full digital Maya system, which they still use today, which uh, allowed them to do a much bigger look on the big screen. And Paramount gave them enough of a budget to um, sort of have some CGI hell scenes and basically what was a really good full musical recording um, for South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. And it was a movie that was about censorship, um, and, and as a way it was sort of, I think, or I view it as South Park's official transition from a show that is about shock humor and uh, pointing at where controversy is rather than addressing what makes a controversy absurd. Um, it, it's basically South Park becomes satire through this movie, and uh, it, I think... Even though it's very well timed to be the certain type of movie that uh, is about how naughty language is viewed worse than violence, but we're allowed to see violence all the time. It had the unfortunate release date of June 30th, 1999, which puts it about a month after the Columbine shootings, um, which sort of recontextualized it and all of a sudden made South Park uh, something that became media importance how the movie was doing and whether or not kids were sneaking into the R-rated movie uh, for a movie about kids sneaking into R-rated movies. So as a um, young kid who uh, sort of grew up along with the South Park kids, as weird as that may sound now that they're sort of tools for satire, uh, we'd snuck into the movie a lot, uh, more than just once. Um I can remember specifically all the different tricks of uh, buying to see something else and uh, jetting in to see South Park. What did you buy tickets to see instead? Oh, man, I don't know if I can remember specifically. It got to the point where we would be able to uh, get our parents to actually buy us tickets because they thought that the like they had like a political opinion with the media coverage, which I thought was interesting. 
um, that they would be like, oh, yeah, like these kids could see South Park and be like, oh, come in with us. They're like, no, we don't want to see South Park again. It got to the point where I would see South Park whether or not I wanted to see South Park. It was one of the first uh, movies that I saw in uh, stadium seating and theater seating specifically so I could make out with somebody because you could raise the arm rests, which in our local theater hadn't been possible up to a certain point post South Park. Was this the first time you made out with this girl in this theater? Oh, no. It was just when you're that age, there aren't a lot of places okay. to make out. I'm just trying to contextualize the landmarks that happened during during all of these viewings of South Park. You could set an entire coming-of-age TV show, it sounds, <laughs> in, in Dave's screenings of South Park. Essentially, or at least my relationship to South Park and its creators. Like, I think my sophomore year um, of high school, we ended up watching Cannibal the Musical when a sub was in. Um, and it, it, the sub was uh, also a friend of uh, my friend's father. Um, he wasn't in the class, but he was like, oh, yeah, we should, we should watch Cannibal the Musical. It's a student film by Trey Parker and Matt Stone. And, like, it's a hilarious musical that you guys should check out uh, for, like, especially for a low-budget indie. But there is, you know, a scene where Trey Parker bites a dude's throat and pulls out his esophagus and, like, waves it around. And it's all kind of fake gore, but it's... <laughs> Probably you were not allowed. The sort of thing yeah, you should... you're really exposing some horrible truths about the public education system. Yeah, I can't believe oh, he got he away was, with I that. I don't think he was allowed to sub anymore after that. <laughs> yeah, but he, he went uh, on a high note. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's been interesting. Sort of. Um, uh, I mean, it, it happened to be in the right place and in the right time to sort of grow along with me, which is why it's always been when I ask Katie about if she watches it and it takes her back to that time. I could watch episodes of South Park and almost feel like I'm at home. And that almost has nothing to do with its content, but it's purely something that I could hook into nostalgically. But, uh, I mean, I don't want that to dis to talk down how good the, the movie actually is. I think it's a really great, uh, satire and obviously, or, um, not not obviously. I think it's a good, pretty good musical for oh, a yeah. comedy musical. Probably it's the, the best original Book of Mormon. It's probably the best original musical. I mean, what other original musicals have there been on film in the last decade? Probably, I don't, yeah, that's I, a good point. I guess Moulin Rouge, maybe, but that's not original songs. Uh, if yeah, if, if Hedwig and the Angry Inch doesn't. doesn't oh yeah, yeah, yeah. For, oh, yeah. Uh, no, well, there Hedwig, was an original Hed- musical. He'd staged it. Oh uh, yeah. In another format. Well, I was just thinking of like that as opposed to Chicago or God forbid nine. Yeah, neither of um, those qualify certainly. <laughs> um, Dave, I have a question for you about. Dance well, I have a question. Yeah, there you go. Um, or, the idea that South Park's release date was so close to Columbine. It's what's funny is I don't really remember that at all. Like I obviously remember Columbine and I remember South Park coming out. I remember that pop culture summer pretty well, but the association between South Park and Columbine just didn't exist for me. And I, I'm guessing it's your proximity in Colorado that made that. Yeah, we were. You know, we would play them in sports occasionally because our school happened to be fairly new and they screwed up our size to our ranking and. Football. Anyway, yes, it was a interesting. It was an interesting summer, and it's really interesting because I sort of deal with that summer through. I was uh, watching a lot of really great movies. I mean, it's you know the Fight Club, South Park are two movies that I bring up that had one made me one of like really like movies, and one made me you know sort of crystallize these first few years I had with this 
animated group of potty mouth children that had ridiculous side adventures. And it was really interesting to see that my community sort of used this movie to have a debate um, about what was actually going on. And I'm not sure if it, I wasn't, I, I wasn't focusing on the right parts of my community to know if it uh, was actually as powerful as I'm making it sound, but it's certainly how it felt at my age that um, there was a lot of blaming going on um, of my peers of what makes something, uh, ter- what if, if something can make someone do something horrible, and if so, what are those things, and how do you keep it away from the youth that want to consume it? So whether it be certain types of music or first-person shooting video games or uh, anything like that, it was an amazing time for this movie to come out that said, you know, also it's ridiculous that, you know, you don't want kids to swear because it's part of the nature of, you know, watching entertainment and aping, and you, it's not the end of the world. It's It's part of the process of growing up and then maybe you should parent and not blame Canada <laughs> and they got to do that at the Oscars so I think it, it was it was interesting and it definitely affected me as a Colorado person and at the right time in my life which is why I chose it for this episode Next, I uh, I was grappling with what to do for this because I was originally going to tell a silly story about the movie My Dog Skip, but I decided that it was too silly. And, and you I wouldn't should... did, you didn't want to subject us to Frankie Muniz? No, because it's just, that's just so silly. And I, I sometimes I realize that I need to get past my own bullshit and probably be more honest. And um, I just mulled it over for a long time and realized that I, I should talk about. Uh, a story that uh, X2 X-Men United is at the center of, of all things. <laughs> Not um, silly at all, that film. <laughs> no. Well, I was about to say, X-Men, X-Men United is a very silly movie. It's a very fun movie. It's a very comic book movie. It's comic booky, um, But it's a lot of fun. I, I'll always think of it as a really fun movie, and I'll, yeah, I'll never forget it. Um, so when I saw X2, it was May 2nd, 2003. I'll never forget it because I still have my ticket from X2. It was this opening day? Uh, this was opening day. Um, it was a Friday, obviously. And I was uh, a junior in high school. And the background here is I have a core group of nerd-ass friends who I was just friends with through middle school, through high school. We were all in the same classes because we're all taking, like, 
the nerdy whatever. So I was in the AP Calc exam on May 2nd, 2003. You know, this massive, grueling four-hour exam of uh, math that I don't remember at all anymore. Um, And I remember vividly that the rules were, you know, after you finish the four-hour exam, you go back to class. Even though at this point, you know, we weren't really doing anything in other classes, we were still, yep, take the exam and go back to class. So fuck that was pretty much the attitude all my friends had. And um, one of my friends, Anthony, was like really, really excited for X2 X-Men United. And you know what? So was I. I was kind of in my um, snobbish period. This is when I was starting to really appreciate film and that sort of thing. But damn it, this guy was so excited for X2. Him and I just rallied our whole group, and the plan was we're going to sneak out after the AP Calc exam. By the way, this is like the most adventurous we've ever been in my entire life. Like, I didn't I, drink I, I, don't or, think I, I don't think I would have had the guts to do even that. Yeah, I was like, skipping out of class? We're supposed to go back. No, Tony we can Gilroy just walk is out. like taking notes from this for <laughs> the next born adventure. It was so intense. It was so intense. But I'll, I'll just never forget it. Like, leaving school. Whoa dangerous and um four or five of us i think we anthony and i got our girlfriends a couple of our friends we just piled into this car and we're gonna go to the mall and we're gonna see x2 x-men united because he's excited i'm excited big silly popcorn movie um and i don't know why he was so obsessed with x-men even though i i read comic books now more than i did back then but we were just it was it was a lot of fun to kind of skip out break the rules and go something see something we were really pumped to see um, and I just have this vivid image in my mind that I'll never forget of being in the back seat with this guy, just getting excited as our girlfriends are sitting in the front driving us to this movie. We are children. We are such children going to see X2. <laughs> and, um, and, and the experience was great. I mean, X2 delivered. I think we all would agree that it's, it stood kind of the test of time as one of these comic book staples. Again, I admit fully that it's a silly, stupid movie, um, but it's a lot of fun. And I, I remember that after that, and summer came, and I worked at Best Buy and whatnot, and senior year comes, and, you know, I, I felt like my senior year of high school was kind of this weird um, goodbye period, like a year-long goodbye, where my my friendships dissipated in a way I could never have expected. And, you know, I was close friends with all these people, including Anthony, my buddy, who we, I went to see X-Men with. And um, that year just... It, Kind of everything fell apart, but in a way that it's supposed to. I think you go to you're getting ready for college. You're getting ready to leave. You're excited. Um, and my first year of college was like that too. I just I didn't talk to my friends from high school. Um, I kind of let them go. I was in film school, you know, ultimate snobbery now. Uh, and and I was immersed in it. I really loved my first year of college. And I remember returning uh, the summer after, and. It all hit me kind of like a ton of bricks because I hadn't talked to people in so long. I was anxious to see people. But in the first few weeks that I return, I um, I go get coffee with another friend of mine from high school. And, um, like, I, I – you know, these things you never expect. I go order a couple of frappuccinos, sit down on a park bench, and my friend who uh, went to college with my buddy Anthony leans over to me and tells me that the guy's dead. He kills himself, like just those few weeks from back home, and it's something I could never have anticipated or expected. And I was—it was just like such a blow 
Like, how do you even begin to swallow that sort of thing when you're fucking sucking down frappuccinos and that sort of thing? And, and it really hit me like a ton of bricks. But I didn't I didn't have anything to think. Like, I couldn't digest it. I had just gotten back from Phil's film school, possibly the silliest thing anyone could spend their time doing. I was just so deflated. Um, and I didn't really have a conclusion. I didn't really know what to do. And, you know, within a few weeks of that incident, it, it was time to have his funeral. And I'm, like, standing in a church full of people sobbing, and I have no reaction whatsoever. I just can't think of anything. Um, but what I remember most about that moment was X2, X-Men United, which is the dumbest thing to think. Um, but in that, in that moment and it, throughout that, you know, that whole period of time and after too as i'm struggling to figure out what to do with my life and how do you how do you re- properly react to this all i could think about was x2 x-men united because that was a moment that i'll never forget one of glowing excitement being in the back of that car with this guy um and and living life to the fullest and being so joyful and having so much fun and breaking the rules and being together and camaraderie and what those kind of popcorn movies can do, like how you can be excited for something so silly and stupid. Um, but the real joy is doing it with other people that you know and kind of immersing yourself in that fandom. And for for you know years and years now, I, I've still not reacted properly in my mind to that incident, but. For me, X2, X-Men United stands that test of time that I can um, continue remembering something good uh, while I struggle to figure out how to think of something bad maybe but or, or think of something heavier, deeper, more meaningful. Um, but I still have X2, X-Men United. And what I think about even more so is that everyone probably has a movie like that that is a close connection to someone they love. And that I should never I should never judge people for the movies that they like because I know that they have deeper meanings and as something as popcorny um, as X2 can have much bigger implications for other people. And um, it's an important movie to me. Well, you keep discounting it for being popcorny, but like you're saying, that's kind of the whole point. Like the, the process of going to see movies like that with your friends, I think especially when you're in high school, when you don't have spaces other than the movies to go to. I mean, every like you said, everyone's got movies like that, and the bigger and the popcornier, the better, and the more vibrant those memories. Like it, it's, it really is Absolutely. important in that way. Well, that's why it's amazing that you know I can look up on IMDb what day we did that, but like I'll never forget that day specifically. Like I'll just never forget the events of that day and exactly the order they went because I'm so emotionally attached to it now, and I feel good about that. I like. X2 for what it is, but what I like more is that it was a great event. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was unifying in the way that only a blockbuster movie could be. And also, I think, more innocent because it, I mean, it just represents, I don't know, more of a teenage idyllic totally. sort of activity in a way that going to see with a cinephile friend something that was more, uh, I don't know, explicitly artsy uh, may, <laughs> may not yeah. have been. It's true. That's that's what I was going to say, is that one of the good things about that is that X2 is never going to ask you to think of it more deeply than you just did. So therefore, I think it's yours in that memory. Cool. No, and it's it's also about finding identity. I mean, that, I think that movie, more than the other X-Men movies, is about, kind of relates to that teenage idea of figuring out who you are. And that sounds like a lot of, I mean, what you and everyone goes through when they're a junior or senior in, in high school. That's true. It might be the perfect film for that exact time. Uh, yeah. A struggle of... of 
levels that no one can comprehend, especially not the teenagers going through it. But, um, you know, what's so funny is that something that life changing, um, I continue to just not and be baffled by it and not really have an understanding or how I should be feeling in quotes um, or or making sense of anything. But I'm glad that, uh, you know, I still have something to look back fondly on. Yeah, I like to think everyone has, like, especially with high school friends, has a movie that you associate with them. Like you, you have a clear memory of seeing something with every one of your closer friends from that time. I think I definitely do. And it's, I think it's important to uh, remember them in that way too. Like I, I you know, I can be critical of X two, but uh, I'm glad to have it as that icon. I'm on? Okay. You're uh, on. Uh, well, listening to Patch's story, uh, it dawned on me yet again that I I don't really have any sort of uh, very personal stories involving film. I mean, for somebody who watches film uh, and relates to it in all ways that one can relate to film as much as I do, it, that seems unlikely. But maybe, I don't know. I just uh, I have my own dialogues with the films and maybe approach them more analytically than, than others. And all of my experiences in seeing films seem to be very sort of private um, not because there's anything particularly secretive about them. They're just often done independently. I've always sort of enjoyed going to the movies by myself. It was a recreational pastime in high school like it was for Dave and, and Patches and I'm sure Katie as well. But, you know, other than all the experiences that we seem to have had while watching John Q uh, making out with with uh, foreign girls and whatnot in the back rows, <laughs> uh, who didn't do that while seeing John Q? So it's like it, the third week in a row that we've, we've referenced that. In conclusion, um, here's a list of movies I've made out to. <laughs> I think exactly. we've all made out to John Q. No, I have not. I've never seen John Q. I don't know what I was doing with my high school, but it's, not that. It's what John Cassavetes, the director's father, would have wanted. Um, <laughs> but, uh, that movie is really a piece of shit, or so I could <laughs> glean from the corner of my eyes. But um, uh, the days where you could just like passionately make out next to your friends in close quarters and not be like self-conscious about it at all. Um, but anyway, I think uh, I, I'm, my sense is that that transitional phase when you're going from high school to college can be a very vulnerable one. I think that's not a particularly novel uh, realization. And uh, I think I was a little bit more engaged with, with the experiences I was having both 
alone together, artistic and otherwise. Uh, when I was at college for the first time, I was going to school 45 minutes away from home, but you know, I was very adamant about not really returning to home. And I was miserable my first year of college and certainly the first few weeks. Uh, I lived with my best friend, but at the same time, I didn't like anyone else that I met there. Um, we were on a miserable floor. Everyone was sort of friends, uh, you know, the mandatory friends, your single serving friends is, you know, to reference Dave's favorite movie. Um, and they just, you know, your friends with your hallway mates, your friends with the people you make in the elevator because it's really all you've got. Uh, and New York was still sort of reeling from 9-11 and it's just sort of, it wasn't something that I had, I had a immensely personal connection to, but it certainly amplified to sort of how alone I felt in a way that I was just getting comfortable in high school and just really thought that I had things figured out and then it was sort of ripped from underneath me. And the first thing we did in college with uh, with this group of girls, my roommate and I, and then these, this group of girls that we met, was go and see a movie that I was very excited to see, um, Lost in Translation, which we saw it on the afternoon that it opened at Lincoln Center. It was September uh, 12th, 2003, I believe. And uh, I saw it and I can't say specifically, but I think that everyone I saw it with was, was pretty bored. Um, and I was sort of half engaged. Uh, I can't remember why I'd wanted to see it so badly. I think it's because I had an enduring fascination with Japan, uh, a place that I had been once previously before that. Uh, and I had liked Virgin Suicides. And so we saw the movie and I was sort of nonplussed about it. And that was that. And then I really had nothing to do with a lot of my nights the first semester of college. Uh, so I ended up just going to see Lost in Translation a lot. I saw Lost in Translation probably eight times uh, that semester. Uh, and I am someone who will n- almost never see a movie more than once in theaters. Uh, and so but I spent upwards of $100, I guess, going to see Lost in Translation. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure what it was about it. I mean, obviously, you know, beyond the obvious and just sort of the dislocation at the heart of the movie uh, and that feeling of it, it, it the movie is very comforting to someone who was a bit maladjusted and, and lost and, and not quite sure what the next move was, um, but was surrounded by a bajillion like-minded people at college, all of whom were hoping just to get by together uh, from this experience. And for whatever reason, I sort of became really, I don't know, I became really involved in, in that film and the world around it, and it was sort of like a safety blanket. And I've been to Japan several times since seeing it for the first time, but the next time that I went, I uh, sort of, I can't remember how transparent I was about this to the people that were traveling with me, but we were there for a very long time. We were there for like five or six weeks, and uh, only some of that time was in Tokyo, where the vast majority of Lost Translation is set, but I sort of engineered a, I would have to say the most comprehensive Lost in Translation tour that has ever been attempted. (laughs) It would be really difficult to to one-up this. Uh, and I think they caught on maybe a little bit towards the end. I mean, it started off pretty pretty uh, innocently or, or innocuously, and then we like visited a... Uh, we went to a shabu-shabu restaurant where they have this terrible lunch in the film. The food is good. The conversation is terrible. But, uh, and it was fucking amazing. If you ever if you ever go to Japan, you ever go to Tokyo, you gotta go to the shabu-shabu place. It's right near Shibuya. Uh, I can give you directions. Um, and uh, I think you should guide these tours. I mean, I know the story's still going, but it sounds like you get a business model. Well, or at least publish them somewhere. Yeah. And uh, we went while we were in Kyoto because I, I you know, wanted to make sure I laid the groundwork. We visited the shrines that they were, and some of them are very obvious. And the Kyoto is, has a bajillion shrines, but the film really visited the major ones. There's a scene where Charlotte, Scarlett Johansson, sort of steps across these stepping stones. Um, and I made sure to get a bunch of pictures from there and whatnot in the Haiyan Jingu shrine in Kyoto. Um, and went through that whole rigmarole and then 
things started getting really hyper-specific in Tokyo. I mean, you can go to, like, Shibuya Crossing, which is sort of like the Times Square of Tokyo, which is the main location of the film and not a particularly exciting place to visit in this context. But then we went to the, not only the uh, karaoke venue where they have this film's famous karaoke <laughs> scenes, but we went to with, the... With the, with the zebra-striped walls. Exactly. The, uh, yeah. uh, but we went to the actual booth that they did the scene in, and I speak, you know, very meager Japanese, but I... Somehow, and I thought this would be like, you know, a popular tourist destination once I figured out where it was. And I asked the guy, it was like two in the morning, and I asked the guy who worked there uh, in my, you know, very, very broken Japanese where I might be able to find this particular booth. Uh, and he was like, Are you serious? <laughs> like, like <laughs> so he gave me a look like I was, uh, I was very, very stupid for trying to attempt this. But um, we found the booth and we got very, very drunk uh, and sang all sorts of songs. And we, I mean, we visited. Literally every location from the film, I think, by the end of it, I, I'm hoping, I don't know if this is true. I like to think that I sort of galvanized the group into wanting to hit up all these locations by the end because I think the movie became sort of increasingly popular between us. And then, of course, we stayed for one night because that was all that we could afford in the Park Hyatt uh, in Tokyo, which is the film, or the hotel in which the movie's made. And I got a Japanese um, DVD, which is lovely, Meta. of, uh, of Lost in Translation. And we actually watched it in the hotel in uh it was very it was very inception-y before it's time but there was something well my my uh, question for you david is what did you glean from the experience i don't know open like being obsessed with the movie before the trip and then after it i mean what by going through the motions in real life of this film what do you feel like you took away from it and and how does that inform the film now I mean, I think first and foremost, I took away that I really love Lost in Translation. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've you know, I, I would uh, love to have a uh, bit of a reach, but a very sort of profound answer to that question that really speaks to who I am as a person. But I think there's just something perfect about that film for, way I, for me. I love it in a way that I don't love any other movie that I've ever seen. And uh, there's – but certainly – in and you know I, I really want to stress that this wasn't really the focus of the trip and I've been you know I said I've been to Japan now I think about five times and um, I've done and been many many places that have nothing to do with Lost in Translation there and it didn't even inspire my first trip there it was actually Kurosawa that inspired my first trip there and you know visiting his grave in Ozu and where he shot and writing my college essay about that uh, so I guess this was very much on my mind but um, there was just something about because the movie unlike some of the movies that we love is so real and tactile. I mean, all these locations exist. Very, very little was made for the film. Um, and it's all very sort of organic and natural. I mean, there are no flying spaceships. There are no hobbits. It's very, you can, you can feel very much what it was like to sort of be living that story. And, uh, I don't know. There was just something that dovetailed between my love for the movie and how like the insane and sort of, I, I think, uh, uh, unmatched foreignness to a Westerner of being in Japan. I mean, it's a place that it's about as, as close as you can get to being on another planet without leaving uh, America. And I think that becomes more and more true uh, without leaving America, without leaving uh, the <laughs> earth. And I think it becomes more and more true with every disastrous thing that happens in this country. Um, but, uh, it, and just 
sort of, I don't know, it just sort of collapsed in that moment watching this movie, which is an exceptionally dumb thing to do, especially because I already had the movie memorized more or less. And I just wanted, I was really just doing this to say that I had done it. Uh, and now it's coming in so handy on a podcast, you know, nine years later. Uh, but, well, um, a, no, but it was like sitting there in the hotel. Sorry, you I was just finishing this one thought, just like sitting there in the hotel, watching this movie in the hotel and, you know, looking, moving your eyes a little bit and seeing sort of the exact same decor, um, and the same hallway just outside the door, you know, just sort of collapsing the, th- the things that I think were readily appreciable about the world beyond the film that I really loved with my love of the movie and my love of movies in general. Uh, and it was just a very harmonic, harmonious uh, moment for me. Um, what you were saying about seeing this at the time that you started college and feeling New York is kind of alienating. When I, when I saw it, I think maybe like six months after it came out, I saw it at college. And I had very limited knowledge of New York, but I'd always been fascinated by it and kind of alienated by it in a similar way that you're describing. And I remember writing in my journal, like, I want to – this is when I still thought I wanted to be a filmmaker. I was like, I want to make a movie someday that tackles New York the way Lost in Translation tackles Tokyo. Because I thought there – I just felt this intense connection between that feeling of isolation in that movie and the way that I felt going to New York. And I, I mean, for many reasons, I don't think that movie can exist. But I, I know exactly what you mean by how that taps in with, like, being alone in a city. And it seems like that – I mean, even more so than visiting the places, like, that's why that movie hit you so hard because it kind of came to you at the exact right time. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think the, the reason that the movie resonates with people like me and you and a, a number of other people is that it really has nothing to do with Japan, which is exploited beautifully for its sort of uh, appreciable foreignness, even though, you know, I would fight to the death that it's not racist in the slightest. I think it's very accurately captures uh, that displaced feeling of, of someone who's never been in part of that culture being there. But I think that it just speaks so innately uh, as a metaphor to anyone sort of uh, being sort of, you know, flipped upside down and not and seeing all these things that they vaguely recognize in the case of the film, her husband uh, and this life that she's designed but doesn't really entirely understand um, and and having it all sort of right on the tip of your tongue but not making sense and it was a perfect movie for for me and an antidote and something that I uh, you know I'm, I'm not always one of those people that turns to to movies for therapy I find myself doing that with music more than anything else but uh, until I finally found my legs in New York uh, that was that was very big for me and visiting all those locations I don't know it just sort of it made something that had been so helpful to me, an abstraction that had been so helpful to me, feel real. Well, what it, what it sounds uh, like, like to me is that for somebody in. who is like as into movies that you are, you have a critical opinion about everything that you see. But also the way you collect is like by having a pristine copy of the film. You're not somebody that, you know, buys like T-shirts and action figures and limited stuff out the wazoo. So I think it's interesting because what I heard is like you had this compulsion to like show yourself and show the movie how much you loved it and it sort of like pushed you into this experience which it was a romantic gesture exactly it got to know you You did that instead of going to comic-con which really sounds like i did had they been a lost in translation uh panel at comic-con i'm sure i would have been there (laughs) but uh, they could have had one for midnight velocity the film that uh, anna ferris's character makes with keanu reeves Looking at this movie over the weekend when I was knew we were going to do this, uh, my favorite joke that I never caught is that the the band that that woman, the lounge singer with the bright red hair, the band is called Sausalito, Sausalito, which is such a hilarious name for a crappy <laughs> hotel lounge band. It made me so happy. Uh, and I, yeah, I mean that's a uh, it's it's uh, I love that whole thing. And the last thing I'll say in tying this up, uh, in in light of Katie mentioning the bar, the New York City Grill at the top of the Park Hyatt, is if you go there. 
And I, you can email or tweet at Opkino if you're ever planning on going to Tokyo, and I'll happily dispense uh, advice and, and tips as to exactly how to follow this route if you're so inclined. But uh, they will offer you $150 macaroni and cheese with lobster, and uh, don't make don't you know be as prudent as I was in actually asking because it's very appealing. Why would macaroni and cheese be one hundred fifty dollars? It must be life alteringly good. Uh, but I asked our waiter, and he was very uh, very candid about saying that it's very dry and it's not worth the money. <laughs> that I should uh, I shouldn't lose <laughs> and, sleep over it. And that is the most important advice to take is, from that this. That is really uh, the true moral of the story. So please take that advice with you. <laughs> Godspeed. All right. Expensive macaroni and cheese is a sham. Thank you very much, ladies. Order quell three. We we are Sausalito. Um, yeah, that does it for this quarter quell. I hope you guys all enjoyed getting to know us all a little better. I think that was fun. I enjoyed hearing all of these stories. Um, we'll be back with a normal format show next week. I, I maybe at some point we'll talk about. Born. I'm hoping we just. I think we're talking about Paranorman. Because I want to talk. We're talking about Paranorman. I still haven't seen Paranorman, but I know everybody else loves it, so we'll get there. Um, So yeah, uh, back to regularly regularly scheduled programming next week. In the meantime, I'm Matt Patches. I'm the movies editor of Hollywood.com. You can find me on Twitter at Mister M I S T R Patches P A T C H E S. Hey, it's me, Dave with the Seven. I wield the reality gem at latino-review.com. And you could... I have no idea what that right, means. That's right, you don't. And you could follow me on Twitter at <laughs> twitter.com slash da 7 I'm David Ehrlich, and you can find me at movies.com, where I write their Criterion Corner column and some other mumbo-jumbo. And at uh, Box Office Magazine, where I write reviews, and criterioncorner.tumblr.com. And I am Katie Rich. I work here at Cinema Blend, and you can follow me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K A T E Y R I C H. And we will be back talking to you next week. Jesus wrote my lyrical outro with the greatest of these.